Hello there. It is Thursday night, and this is White Ashflies with Colin Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Tonight we're presenting episode one of a new series, My First Summer in the Sierra, by John Muir. Thanks for that one, Jeff. You can follow White Ashflies and find old episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, and on Twitter at ColinMahoney15. And now, episode one of My First Summer in the Sierra, by John Muir, on White Ashflies. Through the Foothills with a Flock of Sheep. 1869. In the great central valley of California, there are only two seasons, spring and summer. The spring begins with the first rainstorm, which usually falls in November. In a few months, the wonderful flowery vegetation is in full bloom, and by the end of May, it is dead and dry and crisp, as if every plant had been roasted in an oven. Then the lolling, panting flocks and herds are driven to the high, cool, green pastures of the Sierra. I was longing for the mountains about this time, but money was scarce, and I couldn't see how a bread supply was to be kept up. While I was anxiously brooding on the bread problem, so troublesome to wanderers, in trying to believe that I might learn to live like the wild animals, gleaning nourishment here and there from seeds, berries, etc., sauntering and climbing in joyful independence of money or baggage. Mr. Delaney, a sheep owner, for whom I had worked a few weeks, called on me and offered to engage me to go with his shepherd and flock to the headwaters of the Merced and Tuolumne rivers, the very region I had most in mind. I was in the mood to accept work of any kind that would take me into the mountains, whose treasures I had tasted last summer in the Yosemite region. The flock, he explained, would be moved gradually higher through the successive forest belts as the snow melted, stopping for a few weeks at the best places we came to. These, I thought, would be good centers of observation, from which I might be able to make many telling excursions within a radius of eight or ten miles of the camps, to learn something of the plants, animals, and rocks. For he assured me that I should be left perfectly free to follow my studies. I judged, however, that I was in no way the right man for the place, and freely explained my shortcomings confessing that I was wholly unacquainted with the topography of the upper mountains, the streams that would have to be crossed, and the wild sheep-eating animals, etc. In short, that what with bears, coyotes, rivers, canyons, and thorny, bewildering chaparral, I feared that half or more of his flock would be lost. Fortunately, these shortcomings seemed insignificant to Mr. Delaney, the main thing, he said, was to have a man about the camp whom he could trust to see that the shepherd did his duty, and he assured me that the difficulties that seemed so formidable at a distance would vanish as we went on, encouraging me further by saying that the shepherd would do all the herding, 
that I could study plants and rocks and scenery as much as I liked, and that he would himself accompany us to the first main camp, and make occasional visits to our higher ones, to replenish our store of provisions and see how we prospered. Therefore I concluded to go, though still fearing when I saw the silly sheep bouncing one by one through the narrow gate of the home corral to be counted, that of the two thousand and fifty, many would never return. I was fortunate in getting a fine St. Bernard dog for a companion. His master, a hunter with whom I was slightly acquainted, came to me as soon as he heard that I was going to spend the summer in the Sierra, and begged me to take his favorite dog, Carlo, with me, for he feared that if he were compelled to stay all summer on the plains, the fierce heat might be the death of him. I think I can trust you to be kind to him, he said, and I am sure he will be good to you. He knows all about the mountain animals, will guard the camp, assist in managing the sheep, and in every way be found able and faithful. Carlo knew we were talking about him, watched our faces, and listened so attentively that I fancied he understood us. Calling him by name, I asked him if he was willing to go with me. He looked me in the face with eyes expressing wonderful intelligence, then turned to his master, and after permission was given by a wave of the hand toward me and a farewell patting caress, he quietly followed me as if he perfectly understood all that had been said and had known me always. June 3, 1869 this morning provisions, camp kettles, blankets, plant press, etc., were packed on two horses, the flock headed for the tawny foothills, and away we sauntered in a cloud of dust. Mr. Delaney, bony and tall, with sharply hacked profile like Don Quixote, leading the pack horses, Billy, the proud shepherd, a Chinaman and a digger Indian to assist in driving for the first few days in the brushy foothills, and myself with notebook tied to my belt. The home ranch from which we set out is on the south side of the Tuolumne River, near French Bar, where the foothills of metamorphic gold-bearing slates dip below the stratified deposits of the Central Valley. We had not gone more than a mile before some of the old leaders of the flock showed by the eager, inquiring way they ran and looked ahead that they were thinking of the high pastures they had enjoyed last summer. Soon the whole flock seemed to be hopefully excited, the mothers calling their lambs, the lambs replying in tones wonderfully human, their fondly quavering calls interrupted now and then by hastily snatched mouthfuls of withered grass. Amid all the seeming babble of baas, as they streamed over the hills, every mother and child recognized each other's voice. In case a tired lamb, half asleep in the smothering dust, should fail to answer, its mother would come running back through the flock toward the spot where its last response was heard, and refuse to be comforted until she found it, the one of a thousand, though to our eyes and ears all seemed alike. The flock traveled at the rate of about a mile an hour, outspread in the form of an irregular triangle, 
about a hundred yards wide at the base and a hundred and fifty yards long, with a crooked, ever-changing point made up of the strongest foragers, called the leaders, which, with the most active of those scattered along the ragged sides of the main body, hastily explored nooks in the rocks and bushes for grass and leaves. The lambs and feeble old mothers dawdling in the rear were called the tail end. About noon the heat was hard to bear. The poor sheep panted pitifully and tried to stop in the shade of every tree they came to, while we gazed with eager longing through the dim, burning glare toward the snowy mountains and streams, though not one was in sight. The landscape is only wavering foothills, roughened here and there with bushes and trees and outcropping masses of slate. The trees, mostly the blue oak, Quercus douglasi, are about thirty or forty feet high, with pale blue-green leaves and white bark, sparsely planted on the thinnest soil or in crevices of rocks beyond the reach of grass fires. The slates in many places rise abruptly through the tawny grass in sharp, lichen-covered slabs, like tombstones in deserted burying grounds. With the exception of the oak and four or five species of manzanita and cyanothus, the vegetation of the foothills is mostly the same as that of the plains. I saw this region in the early spring, when it was a charming landscape garden full of birds and bees and flowers. Now the scorching weather makes everything dreary. The ground is full of cracks. Lizards glide about on the rocks. And ants in amazing numbers, whose tiny sparks of life only burn the brighter with the heat, fairly quiver with unquenchable energy as they run in long lines to fight and gather food. How it comes out that they do not dry to a crisp in a few seconds' exposure to such sunfire is marvelous. A few rattlesnakes lie coiled in out-of-the-way places, but are seldom seen. Magpies and crows, usually so noisy, are silent now, standing in mixed flocks on the ground beneath the best shade trees, with bills wide open and wings drooped, too breathless to speak. The quails also are trying to keep in the shade about the few tepid alkaline water holes. Cottontail rabbits are running from shade to shade along the cyanothus brush, and occasionally the long-eared hare is seen cantering gracefully across the wider openings. After a short noon rest in the grove, the poor dust-choked flock was again driven ahead over the brushy hills but the dim roadway we had been following faded away just where it was most needed, compelling us to stop and look about us and get our bearings. The Chinamen seemed to think we were lost, and chattered in pidgin English concerning the abundance of liddy stick, chaparral, while the Indians silently scanned the billowy ridges and gulches for openings. Pushing through the thorny jungle, we at length discovered a road trending toward Coulterville, which we followed until an hour before sunset, when we reached a dry ranch and camped for the night. Camping in the foothills with a flock of sheep is simple and easy, but far from pleasant. The sheep were allowed to pick what they could find in the neighborhood until after sunset, watched by the shepherd, while the others gathered wood, made a fire, cooked, 
unpacked and fed the horses, etc. About dusk, the weary sheep were gathered on the highest open spot near the camp, where they willingly bunched close together, and after each mother had found her lamb and suckled it, all lay down and required no attention until morning. Supper was announced by the call, Grub! Each with a tin plate helped himself direct from the pots and pans while chatting about such camp studies as sheep feed, mines, coyotes, bears, or adventures during the memorable gold days of pay dirt. The Indian kept in the background, saying never a word, as if he belonged to another species. The meal finished, the dogs were fed, the smokers smoked by the fire, and under the influences of fullness and tobacco, the calm that settled on their faces seemed almost divine, something like the mellow, meditative glow portrayed on the countenances of saints. Then suddenly, as if awakening from a dream, each with a sigh or a grunt knocked the ashes out of his pipe, yawned, gazed at the fire a few moments, said, Well, I believe I'll turn in, and straightway vanished beneath his blankets. The fire smoldered and flickered an hour or two longer. The stars shone brighter. Coons, coyotes, and owls stirred the silence here and there, while crickets and hylas made a cheerful, continuous music so fitting and full that it seemed a part of the very body of the night. The only discordance came from a snoring sleeper and the coughing sheep with dust in their throats. In the starlight, the flock looked like a big gray blanket. June 4th. The camp was astir at daybreak. Coffee, bacon, and beans formed the breakfast, followed by quick dishwashing and packing. A general bleeding began about sunrise. As soon as a mother ewe arose, her lamb came bounding and bunting for its breakfast. And after the thousand youngsters had been suckled, the flock began to nibble and spread. The restless weathers with ravenous appetites were the first to move, but dared not go far from the main body. Billy and the Indian and the Chinaman kept them headed along the weary road, and allowed them to pick up what little they could find on a breadth of about a quarter of a mile. But as several flocks had already gone ahead of us, scarce a leaf, green or dry, was left. Therefore the starving flock had to be hurried on over the bare, hot hills to the nearest of the green pastures, about twenty or thirty miles from here. The pack animals were led by Don Quixote, a heavy rifle over his shoulder intended for bears and wolves. This day has been as hot and dusty as the first, leading over gently sloping brown hills, with mostly the same vegetation, excepting the strange-looking Sabine pine, Pinus sabiniana, which here forms small groves or is scattered among the blue oaks. The trunk divides at a height of fifteen or twenty feet into two or more stems, outleaning or nearly upright, with many straggling branches and long gray needles, casting but little shade. In general appearance, this tree looks more like a palm than a pine. 
The cones are about six or seven inches long, about five in diameter, very heavy, and last long after they fall, so that the ground beneath the trees is covered with them. They make fine, resiny, light-giving campfires, next to ears of Indian corn, the most beautiful fuel I've ever seen. The nuts, the Don tells me, are gathered in large quantities by the Digger Indians for food. They are about as large and hard-shelled as hazelnuts. Food and fire fit for the gods from the same fruit. June 5th. This morning, a few hours after setting out with the crawling sheep cloud, we gained the summit of the first well-defined bench on the mountain flank at Pino Blanco. The Sabine pines interest me greatly. They are so airy and strangely palm-like, I was eager to sketch them, and was in a fever of excitement without accomplishing much. I managed to halt long enough, however, to make a tolerably fair sketch of Pino Blanco Peak from the southwest side, where there is a small field and vineyard irrigated by a stream that makes a pretty fall on its way down a gorge by the roadside. After gaining the open summit of this first bench, feeling the natural exhilaration due to the slight elevation of a thousand feet or so, and the hopes excited concerning the outlook to be obtained, a magnificent section of the Merced Valley at what is called Horseshoe Bend came full in sight, a glorious wilderness that seemed to be calling with a thousand songful voices. Bold, down-sweeping slopes, feathered with pines and clumps of manzanita with sunny, open spaces between them, make up most of the foreground. The middle and background present fold beyond fold of finely modeled hills and ridges rising into mountain-like masses in the distance, all covered with a shaggy growth of chaparral, mostly adenostoma, planted so marvelously close and even that it looks like soft, rich plush without a single tree or bare spot. As far as the eye can reach, it extends, a heaving, swelling sea of green as regular and continuous as that produced by the heaths of Scotland. The sculpture of the landscape is as striking in its main lines as in its lavish richness of detail, a grand congregation of massive heights with river shining between, each carved into smooth, graceful folds, without leaving a single rocky angle exposed. As if the delicate fluting and ridging fashioned out of metamorphic slates had been carefully sandpapered. The whole landscape showed design, like man's noblest sculptures. How wonderful the power of its beauty! Gazing awe-stricken, I might have left everything for it. Glad, Endless work would then be mine tracing the forces that have brought forth its features, its rocks and plants and animals and glorious weather. Beauty beyond thought everywhere, beneath, above, made and being made forever. I gazed and gazed and longed and admired until the dusty sheep and packs were far out of sight, made hurried notes in a sketch, Though there was no need of either, for the colors and lines and expression of this divine landscape countenance are so burned into mind and heart 
they surely can never grow dim. The evening of this charmed day is cool, calm, cloudless, and full of a kind of lightning I have never seen before. White, glowing, cloud-shaped masses down among the trees and bushes, like quick-throbbing fireflies in the Wisconsin meadows, rather than the so-called wild fire. The spreading hairs of the horses' tails and sparks from our blankets show how highly charged the air is. <laughs> 